0: If you You really really do exist, and you've you've made all this, I figure you must have some some reason. reason. I mean, what what if the the whole whole universe universe exists, so that that this planet planet can can exist, so so I I can exist? If that's that's true, then you you must must really want me to be here. Honestly, Honestly, that blows blows my my mind mind more than anything. anything. hey good morning this is your first time to be here in this series we're doing a series called beginnings and this christmas season we're looking at how everything that exists got here and today i want to take you to genesis chapter one verse one because it says in the beginning god created and i know that instantly the moment i quote that we're going to have some some areas of controversy because we have varying views about how everything got here so today Just sit back and relax, because we're going to talk about that. Uh, One of my favorite scientists of all time is Francis Crick. He is part of the duo who discovered DNA. In 82, Dr. Crick won the Nobel Prize for biology, and he was was writing in regard to what we've always considered as the origins, at least in, in a lot of scientific thought, and that is Darwinian evolution. And, and, and Dr. Crick, I, I guess he would still consider himself, or at least at the time of this statement, would have still considered himself an evolutionist. But he was writing about all the advances in biology and how we had to look at things now. And, and I love this quote. He said, an honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment. you see how he keeps, character, how he keeps setting that aside? It appears at the moment to be almost... A miracle so many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going well in Genesis 1 verse 1 the Bible supplies that miracle in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 111 God said let the land sprout with vegetation in Genesis 120 God said let the water swarm with fish let the skies be filled with birds of every kind in Genesis 124 God said let the earth produce every sort of animal and in Genesis 126 and God said, let us make human beings in our image. Dr. Crick's word was miracle. And the Bible says, and you may not believe it, and, and that's, that's, that's fine. I, I'm not trying to jam you this morning. But at least the Bible says that it was a miracle. And there is another, and quickly, I want to establish the reality that there is another school of thought as to how all this got here. And that is that it all got here naturally without a miracle. Well, what do you think? What's your, what's your point of view on how it all got here? I believe in special creation. You know, of course, the moment that you walk in probably that I've got a point of view. Yours may be totally opposite to that. You may have a completely naturalistic concept of how everything got here. But here's the deal, and and I'm just trying to find some place of agreement. We'd all have to agree on several things. Number one, we have to agree that life exists. That is unless you're a philosophy student and you're beginning to wonder if anything exists. As for someone who has been there, I can tell you, you will grow out of that. We would have to agree that life does exist, the universe exists, and I think we would all agree that we live on a very special planet. And then we have to agree on something else, and that is that everything that we know of in existence today was once nothing. It was nothing, and it became something. You and I may differ about how the nothing became something, but we pretty well have to agree on that. A lawyer friend of mine says facts are stubborn things. One of the issues that I have when we get into this discussion is that people will say, well, you come from the perspective of religion, and I can't because I hate religion, but there are those who say you come from the perspective of religion, I come from the perspective of science, to which I always say all of us have to bow to fact. You can tell me that this is the best scientific thought available, but who cares? Is it fact or is it not fact? Ultimately, that's what we'll judge. I come from the perspective that the Bible is true, but I'm the first to stand before you and be academically honest and say, if the facts prove me wrong, then I will have to bow to fact. Facts are stubborn things. But we all have to agree on the fact that this was once nothing that became something. Before the 20th century, the prevailing scientific theory was that the universe was eternal and static. It was Einstein who was the first to question it. He was working on his theory of relativity, and some of his calculations kind of came back surprising to him that the, earth was, that the, that the universe was in flux. And Einstein at first, it was so strong was the prevailing theory that Einstein thought he was wrong, that he'd made some kind of mistake. But others began to toy with it and began to question, was indeed the universe not as we first expected? Was it not eternal and static? Or was it perhaps in a state of change? Well, Dr. Edwin Hubble came along and gave us the evidence to confirm that not only was the universe not static, it was expanding, and the galaxies furthest away were moving the fastest. It was astounding but obvious If the universe was expanding, you could sort of run the film backward to the place where it was in a state of infinite density or, to a practical person like me, nothing, nothingness. So that's the fact that we're all left with. Whether you believe in creation or you believe in Darwinian evolution, we're all left with the fact that this was once nothing and now we're all presented with something, life as we know it. So what do you think? Was it an accident? Are we all the product of cosmic rolls of the uh, random rolls of the cosmic dice? Or was there some sort of intelligence behind it all that designed things? I'm not trying to jam you. Honestly, I, I just want you to think because this discussion gets so incredibly emotional. There are those who come from the religious perspective and they're instantly suspicious of science. I can never figure out why that's true. Because, as I said, everything bows to fact. I can remember. I went to public school all 12 years in Texas. And, when I, and, and I was taught some form of evolution from the second grade on. But I remember I was going into advanced biology in high school, and it was like there were adults who were Christians, and they were like scaring me to death, and they were telling me, "Oh, when you go there, they're going to challenge your faith with all this evolutionary thought, and it's going to really challenge you." Well, if you were here last week, I told you I was also in debate, so everything that I—and that's just my nature. When you tell me something, I don't—I don't accept anything instantly. I always want to weigh the facts and weigh the evidence. But I was scared to death going into biology because my faith was going to be challenged. Frankly, I mean, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to anyone. I had fantastic teachers, but I heard it, and I listened to all the lectures on evolution. And between ourselves, I thought, this is the best you got? I'll take my hand any day of the week. In fact, one thing I've discovered starting in in high school and moving on now to my age, every time I study biology, it just puts better cards in my deck or in my hand so i just want to say to you today you know if you're if you come from a perspective perspective of religious religion don't be suspicious of science i mean good science is good science bad science is bad science i mean when science is good you, you you do have to accept fact if you come from the perspective of evolution you have to be careful of a rather emotional quotient that gets into that that segment of the discussion i have friends who are who have evolution is their primary thought for the existence of all things, and we get into discussions. And they sort of give me a circular argument that goes like this. Anything that involves intelligent design is religion. I don't discuss religion. I come from the perspective of science. So anything that suggests or smacks of intelligent design, that is in the realm of religion. And if they know I'm a pastor, they will tell me that is your realm. I come from the perspective of science. But isn't it peculiar that if the evidence leads toward intelligence, it can never be discussed because we can never go there because it is religion. Lance gave me a great illustration of this. He and I were talking about this this week in the office, and he said, it's as if in a discussion you could not consider the number four. You could not use the number four. You could not even conceive of the number four. So that is one of the predetermined um, parameters of your discussion. You cannot consider the number four. Now, how much is two plus two? I have a friend that I discuss this with from time to time, and he's a real, he, he loves me a lot, and I love him. He's just a great guy. But his point of view to me is intelligent people believe in evolution, so anybody who questions evolution is ignorant, and it's a waste of time to listen to anything they say. And I always tell him that is a surefire way to say, stay certifiably ignorant if that is one's point of view. Well, intelligent, all the, you know, it's not true, but all the scientists believe in evolution As if we weigh them, and their sheer weight is somehow evidence. So anyone who questions evolution is ignorant. I mean, we've dealt with this in Kansas. some time back, there was something about evolution and creation both being taught in public schools, and we became the butt of jokes. I mean, nobody presented any evidence that I recall, but it was just we became the butt of jokes for being backward in the state of Kansas and somehow challenging the very essence of science. All I'm saying to you today is think. Look at the evidence. Which direction is the evidence pointing? Is it pointing toward intelligence and design, or is it pointing to a series of random, unguided chants? I respect anyone who has come to a serious conclusion based on any serious objective weighing of the evidence. If you say to me, Mark, I have weighed the evidence, I've looked at both sides, I've explored it, and and I've not just been indoctrinated, I have really explored the evidence on both sides of this equation, and I've come to the fact, I've come to the conclusion, at least in my mind, that Darwinian evolution is true. I don't agree with you, but I respect you for just going through the process of examination. I've come to a conclusion, as you could expect. And for the next few moments today, I want to talk to you about some of the reasons why I believe from a scientific perspective that God created the earth. And it's been a challenge for me to to do this. I mean, I have to apologize to you before we get started because I'm standing behind a lectern. I hate standing behind a lectern. And I've got notes, and I don't like using notes because I like to freestyle. You know, that's why some of you guys ride the bus three times at New Spring because the sermons are different each time, at least a little bit different. I don't intend for them to be, but I sort of freestyle when I talk. And so, standing behind a lectern, it's not my gig, and and then using notes, I hate using notes, but I got to stay on the rails because there's just so many places I could go today. As I said, Lance and I were talking about this, and he and I both have been kind of working on this message, just doing research from a scientific perspective and even looking at it from the perspective of evolutionists and what they had to say. And we sat there, and we had so many things to talk about. I thought, I've got a 35-minute talk, and I've got to, like, boil it down to a few things. I told Lance, I said, I feel like I'm in Madison Square Garden. Every restaurateur in New York City has put out a buffet line with every menu item, and I've been given a small plate and told, fine lunch. That's exactly what I feel like, and I'm not coming from the perspective of theology, just science. I want to give you three things today, and I've tried to boil this down to the three of the reasons why I've come to the conclusion from a scientific perspective that we are the product of intelligence and design. And by the way, those are our options. We're living in a culture today that's really pushing evolution on us, maybe more so than ever before. In fact, <laughs> just check how many times in advertising, or in any basic communication, the word evolve or evolution is used. I was working out at my workouts facility this week, and I saw the cover of a workout magazine that was lying there on the counter that someone had left, and it was talking about what you need to do to work out in order to evolve. One of my favorite, I was watching a program the other day, one of my favorite things, and this is the thought process that's very very much common today. I was watching this program on the evolution of the airplane. Well, I'm thinking, did somebody leave a wheelbarrow out on the runway and it just became by itself a 757? <laughs> you know, I, I'm just, and trust me, I, I'm open to anyone who wants to discuss and debate. I love, I love honest debate, but I want to say, don't snow me. Okay? Don't snow me. <laughs> I know what happens. We have too many engineers here at New Spring. I know what has to happen. You guys and cows work hard to come up with the designs, and you guys work hard to build the planes. There's intelligence involved, and those are our choices. It's either random accidental chance, or there is an intelligence behind it all. If you'd like to study, let me, let me, let me take a time out for a moment and say this. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a science major. And I surely understand that I'm coming at this from a layman's perspective today. And my thoughts are gonna be so frail and so brief, there's no way that I can give you everything you're gonna need to know. But there are some marvelous writers doing some great work in this area today. I would encourage you to read anything by Philip Johnson at Cal Berkeley or William Drimsky at University of Pennsylvania, Michael Behe at Lehigh University. And if you're just wanting to get started, I would recommend a great book by Lee Strobel called Case for Creation. For those of you who are hearing the name Lee Strobel for the first time, Lee Strobel was a lead investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, an atheist. His wife, who had been an agnostic, accepted Christ, and he thought it would be the end of his marriage. But her life was so radically transformed that she, he became interested enough to begin to examine the claims of the Bible and Christianity. And so he, he began to employ the same investigative skills that he had honed at the Tribune in order to determine what he believed about God. And in that process, he came to the realization that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be from a historical perspective and gave his heart and life to Christ. And he's produced some great books called Case for Faith and uh, Case for Christ Jesus and, of course, Case for Creation. So it's a great place to start if you'd like to go into a deeper place here. But let me just give you three reasons today why I believe that we have evidence, solid evidence, That we are the product of intelligent design and number one in that area is the precision of the universe there are 30 separate parameters that have to be set precisely where they are for life to exist one of those is gravity i want you to imagine for just a moment that we have a yardstick that represents the possible range of gravity however gravity could be set let's say we have a 36 inch yardstick and we're going to measure it we're going to mark it off in one inch increments and every inch is a different setting for gravity but now instead of thirty six inches let's imagine that this yardstick is fourteen miles long that would be quite a range if that yardstick fourteen miles long represented the possible range for the settings of gravity but now not fourteen miles long not fourteen million miles long not fourteen billion miles long but 14 billion light years. That's the possible range for the settings of gravity marked in one-inch increments. Do you realize that if the precise setting for gravity were to change by one inch in either direction, life as we know it could not exist. In fact, anything larger than a pea would be instantly crushed. Strobel also talks about the cosmological constant. That's the expansion speed of space in the universe. Because if space were to expand too quickly, material objects could not form. There would be no planets, no stars, no constellations, no galaxies. Fortunately for us, it is fine-tuned to one part in 100 million, billion, 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 billion. One scientist put it this way. He said it's like traveling, for this to have happened just by chance, he said it would be like traveling hundreds of miles into space and hurling a dart toward Earth and hitting a bullseye one trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. That's a little too lucky for me. It's also true at the atomic level. There's a strong nuclear force that binds atoms together. And if that strength were to decrease by one part in 10,000, billion, 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 the only element left in the universe would be hydrogen. There are 30 of these parameters that have to be set with absolute precision for life to exist as it does. Your chance of buying a lottery ticket and winning every day of the year would be better than that. The second reason today why I look at science and say I can't believe it's an accident is something called irreducible complexity. It's interesting that the more we learn about biology, the more challenged evolution becomes. And there's a great scientist named Dr. Michael Behe at Lehigh University who's written extensively on this idea of irreducible complexity. Before I get to what he's going to say, let's go to the evolutionary thought that all of us have been educated to, and that is that evolution starts with life at its most basic and then it moves forward to a more advanced state through a series of changes from the simple to the complex. Darwin proposed that these ever onward and upward changes occurred through a process called natural selection. He looked at all the species, he noted the variation in species, and he figured that the animals whose variations gave them an edge in the struggle to survive would tend to leave more offspring. And if those variations were inherited, then the characteristics of those very life forms would Take it up, up the chain. Some of you can remember in biology a chapter called The Inheritance of Acquired Characteristics. So the idea is you start with primordial ooze, you extrapolate the theory of natural selection over hundreds of millions of years, and voila, you have life as we know it. The only thing is, if you've studied evolution, you understand that one thing is essential for this to happen. Just the probability of all these changes happening, coming out with the conclusions that we have, the idea is there had to be time and lots of it. We only have about... Several thousand years of human history. And so, when we begin to examine life in ways which we can observe and define, we're told, no, you can't consider that when it comes to evolution because we've had hundreds and hundreds of millions, billions of years of development over time. The way evolutionists looked at it was that time was on their side. Well, <laughs> Dr. Behe came along with his idea of irreducible complexity. And and because we did not understand molecular biology the way that we do today, he looked at things in a very different way. Back when Darwin was doing his work, the idea was the cell was just a small unit, a basic unit of protoplasm or jelly. Today we understand that each of the hundred trillion cells in the body of a human being have three billion parts of DNA. What Dr. Behe noticed is that we have multi-component parts to any given organelle or system in a cell, and the issue is all of the parts have to be there for the cell to function. In other words, the cell could not function in a state of lesser complexity. If it had less than its parts, it could not survive. So now the question is not what developed over periods of hundreds of millions of years. The question is, how could any cell exist with less than its parts for 10 seconds? But the truth is, this kind of issue is is not new to this discussion of evolution versus creation because throughout the years, evolutionists have struggled to figure out how something could exist in a state of lesser complexity. How How could it procreate? How could it exist? We see this in the theory of birds. Lance loves this one. He gave this one to me. It seems that the idea that birds evolved from reptiles and so it all started with the ground running reptile. The only thing was, this ground running reptile had to jump in order to catch insects. And then, as it continued to jump to, collect, or to catch insects, two of the scales became frayed. And over generations of this, those two frayed scales became feathers. Dr. Michael Denton, who's a molecular biologist and himself still an evolutionist, he struggles with this. And I just want to read a paragraph of his writing. He writes, "...each feather consists of a central shaft carrying a series of barbs which are positioned at right angles to the shaft to form a vein. The barbs which make up the vein are held together by rows of barbules. From the anterior barbule, hooks project downward, and these interlock with ridges on the posterior barbules." Altogether, in the flight feather of a large bird, about a million barbules cooperate to bind the barbs into an impervious vein. In other words, it was designed to be a feather. And the idea that two scales frayed and became that, even though Dr. Denton is still an evolutionist, he's saying, we're struggling with this. My favorite of these arguments, I was attending a lecture of a biologist who was speaking about the evolution of the rattlesnake. Now, I am from Texas, and we have rattlesnakes in Texas, so I was curious about this. I wanted to know, how did the snake develop its rattle? And I really appreciated this lady's talk because she was being academically honest. In evolution, and I know I'm stating this simplistically, but the idea is the organism or the animal needs something, so he develops it, which is a great thing because wouldn't it be great if you could just evolve the mortgage payment because you need it? But the rattle presented a problem, and, and I really appreciate her academic honesty in dealing with this, because clearly you have to get into the rattlesnake's mind to figure out why he would need to evolve a rattle to warn prey. And I'm promising you, this is her point of view, and I guess it was the only place to go with this argument, but she said the rattlesnake, over time, realized he was dangerous. <laughs> I guess everything he bit died. And so... <laughs> He's thinking he's got to come up with a warning system to warn everybody that he's dangerous. And I haven't been fond of rattlesnakes through the years because I used to hunt in South Texas on my grandfather's place. And, and I can tell you many times I've heard that rattle and I forgot all about quail. But I feel much better about the rattlesnake now just knowing his general goodwill to warn everybody that he's dangerous. He's dangerous. And what really got me, though, was when she said, because she said this couldn't happen. It, it, it took millions of years for it to happen. Okay, you know my sense of humor. Now I'm having trouble. Because I'm thinking way back in time, There's a rattlesnake that says, you know, I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling guilty. And I'm, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm feeling guilty that I'm dangerous. And I need to come up with a warning system. And, he, he, and think about this. At some point, it's got to be his intelligence, and this is her point. His intelligence is governing this process. I'm dangerous. I need to evolve something. But it's going to take millions of years. And this poor rattlesnake gets to the end of his life, and he's only gotten so far, and he tells his son, Son, I'm sorry. I didn't take this very far. You're going to have to take this in your generation and get as far as you can get to evolve this rattle. And a few million years later, after years and years of well-intentioned, good-hearted rattlesnakes. <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> My favorite discussion, and I'll close with this one, is DNA. Our DNA intrigues me. I mean, you consider the fact that we all have this genetic blueprint in our, in our bodies, in every cell. Six billion people on the planet, and yet we all have an individual identifiable DNA. When you were conceived, you were a single zygotic uh, cell, a zygote. The sex cell of your father and your mother came together, one cell. The nucleus of that cell contained the genetic blueprint to direct every part of your development. In that invisible cell, there was every piece of information about your body. As each cell was made, and you have scientists say 100 trillion cells. That's the best guess today, 100 trillion. Each one of those cells is given an exact copy of that blueprint. Man, We say we live in the information age. I mean, I can still remember when it was a big thing that we could copy one sheet of paper with black ink on it. And then we got so crazy about, wow, we figured out how to copy a computer file. And yet, thousands of years before the printing press, the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the automobile, radio, computer, thousands of years before, you had complex human beings walking around with 100 trillion cells, each getting an exact copy Every piece of genetic, genetic information about them, all the thousand human—excuse uh, me, all the, the the millions and then billions of human beings walking around were preloaded with a software. Bill Gates, in speaking about DNA, said it was like a software program that's far advanced to anything we can ever imagine. Do you know that in a single DNA molecule? Just one molecule of DNA, there's enough data to fill one million encyclopedia pages. I know we don't have encyclopedias that are printed anymore. Some of you can remember when we did the Encyclopedia Britannica, just for a point of context. There are 23 volumes in Encyclopedia Britannica, 25,000 pages, and yet, yet in one molecule of DNA, there's enough data to fill one million encyclopedia pages. Just in the nucleus, there's enough information to fill a 920 volume encyclopedia set just one cell if you were to lay all the dna codes in your body if you were to unravel them and lay them out end to end there would be enough dna information in your body to go to the sun and back 600 times you tell me that happened by accident that's too much faith for me It's too much religion for me. But that's not even the big question. If I came from the perspective of evolution, the big question would be, where did all that information come from? All that programming. It's not just a miracle of DNA. It's just all the sheer volume of information that we, nothing with all of our intelligence as human beings and all that we've learned, we can't even get anywhere close to that. Where did it come from? My problem with my friends who believe in evolution is when I get to one of these kind of questions, the scientific establishment always wants me to take it on faith. It's as if to say, well, well, this is all science knows right now. We, we know it wasn't God. We can't consider the number four. We can't consider God. But eventually, evolution will give us the answers. It's sort of like James Shreve, who is the science writer for the New York Times. And in response to I, I talked to you about Dr. Behe's work on irreducible complexity, how that the cell has to have all of its parts to function. So devastating was Behe's argument that this is what James Shreve wrote. He said, Mr. Behe may be right that given our current state of knowledge, good old Darwinian evolution cannot explain the origin of blood clotting or cellular transport. I'm quoting, I promise I'm quoting. He wrote, shouldn't we leave something for our children and grandchildren to puzzle out? If I were to say something like that, you would hoop me off the stage. He said, because something is beyond our understanding today, does not mean that it will not be beyond theirs. One thing about God, He does ask me to take the idea of origins by faith, is if you're an evolutionist, you will have to take those by faith as well because no one was there to observe it that we know. But one thing about God, God has never asked me to believe the ridiculous. What God has asked me to believe, I may not understand, but I have to be honest, it does make sense. Sometimes science asks me to believe the ridiculous. I'm just asking you today, The question that I started out with, take a look at the evidence, and where does it lead you? I've given you three examples of the complexity of the world that we live in. For me, it points toward intelligence. Out, um, Out in the White Mountains of New England, there was a rock formation that was called the Old Man in the Mountain, I was bringing the talk last night. And somebody told me that it collapsed and no longer exists. So I guess like Elvis, the old man has left the building. But in any event, it used to exist. Now, a friend of mine told me, he said they take tour buses down and say he used to be here. If you would come here before, he used to be here. But it was real clear how the old man in the mountain was formed. He was formed by wind and, and water erosion. And it just looked like the face of a man. Now, isn't that cool? If you look at it just right, it looks like the face of a man. Out in South Dakota, there's another rock formation with the faces of four men. The only deal is we know those guys. We know Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt. Now, here's the deal. You show me the old man in the mountain, I'm saying, okay, natural forces. You show me Lincoln's face, and I'm saying, somebody designed this. And all I'm asking you is when you look at life, what does it say? Let me play hardball for a minute, and I don't mean to be offensive, but I do mean to play hardball. When you get right down to it, evolution doesn't make any sense. Let's be honest. The emperor has no clothes. It's not bright. It's frail. It collapses easily under debate and scrutiny. I think anybody would have to admit that the idea that life, with all of its complexity and all those 30 parameters that I explained to you before, those precise settings for life to exist in the universe, I think that anybody who would forward the idea that that all happened by random chance, it's not the smartest thing in the world. So, why do people believe it? You ready for this? It's the price you pay for a life without accountability. It isn't about science, it's about philosophy. There's something in the human heart that wants to be its own God. And if I acknowledge the fact that there is a sovereign God who created this, then that puts me on a slippery slope because now I have to ask other questions. If there is a God so great, how does he feel about me? How does he feel about my lifestyle? And there's something in the human heart that doesn't want to go there. So much so that we would be willing to give up God For a theory that, under any other circumstances, intelligent people will consider laughable. A few moments ago, I I, I told you something I'd like to correct. I told you that God has never asked me to believe the ridiculous, just one time. God asked me to believe that he loves me. That's the part that's ridiculous. But it's true. You know what the the irony is? Is that the reason why people believe in evolution is that they're running from God. And the irony is the God you're running from loves you very much. Loves you enough to make his own son accountable for what you and I have done wrong. Now that's pretty phenomenal to me. Could I ask you a question today? You could come in here today and you say, Mark, I'm just still not sure what I believe. I you've been messed with me a little bit. I still believe in Darwinian evolution. Cool. I appreciate it. I just appreciate your examination of, of life. But could I ask you to do something? Could, could you just be open enough to say, God, I'm open to you. I'm not sure whether you exist or not, but I'm open to you. I'm willing to explore the possibility that you exist. Would you just make yourself known to me? I think if you're willing to pray that objectively and honestly, you'll be surprised how God answers that prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for what we've experienced today. Thank you for what we've experienced this weekend. And Lord, I pray that we might have a deeper understanding of who you are. And God, I do pray for those here today that that might question everything that we said. Oh, God, I pray that you just help them in their search. Make yourself real to them. In Jesus' name I pray hey, would you pray with me for just another moment? I close my talk today by saying God loves you and he wants to have a personal relationship with you. That personal relationship happened because God built a bridge to you. I want to talk for a moment about that bridge. The, The issue that we have with God is that we have things in our lives that are not right, and we know they're not right. And God is a perfect God. So how do imperfect people have a relationship with a perfect God? something's got to be done with our imperfection. This is God's plan. God sent his son into the world, human and God at the same time. And he lay on a Roman cross, and the way God looked at it, he paid for every sin you and I have ever committed. And in a way, Jesus became the bridge between us and God. And anyone who is willing to invite Christ in experiences forgiveness of sin and an eternal relationship with God if you've, if you've never prayed to receive Christ, I want to give you a chance to do that today. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm, you can repeat it with me. It's not magic words. It's what's in your heart that matters. You can use your own words, just words that call out to Jesus. And, and my prayer is that if you've never done that, today will be the day. You ready? Here we go. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned, but I believe you died in my place to pay for my sin. Would you forgive me? And make me God's child. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, I know that happened quickly, and you could wonder what happened to you. You know, I just prayed a prayer. Hey, I prepared something for you. It's my gift to you. It's got some DVDs and cool information. Help you know about the decision you just made and how to take your first steps in following Jesus. When you came in today, you got a worship folder. You can see part of it's perforated. You can detach the card. There's a little picture of this on there. And you can just check the box that says you prayed to receive Christ. In a moment, there will be some offering bags that come by. You can just drop that card in the offering bag. And if you do, I'll mail it to you this week. I know we're crowded, but if you want to get this today, you can. I'm pointing behind the camera operators out of the lobby. There are two zones called Guest Services and New Spring Store just right in the middle of the lobby. Just take the card out there and say, hey, I prayed with Mark. They won't mess with you. They won't won't ask you questions or anything. Just say, I prayed with Mark. Give them the card, and they'll give you this. Next week, one of the coolest talks I've ever had the privilege of bringing, it's called In His Image. You were made in God's image. We're going to talk about that next week.